This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. to DM to GM. This is the show where we help you feel a little more comfortable playing the games you want to play. I am your DM, Russ Moore from Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm your GM, Sean Howard from The End of Time and Other Bothers. And back with us this week to finish off that cliffhanger we had. This is Rev, and I am the host and GM of The Crit Show, an actual play podcast where we play Monster of the Week and other Powered by the Apocalypse games. Thank you so much for coming back with us this week again, Rev. Thank you for having me. An enlightening and and wonderful talk last week, and now Sean is ready to kick us off into hard moves, soft moves, middle middle moves. I don't even know. We're moving. Yeah, we're moving. And if you want to know how to get those, wait for next week because we're cliffhangering it. No, I'm kidding. Okay, <laughs> this is and that's the episode. All right. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night, everyone. I hear cliffhangers are awesome. One of the things with PBTA games is uh, that we're rolling two six sided die for most of them. And pretty much all of them. And uh, a one to six is a fail. A seven to nine is a mixed or partial success. And and then a 10 to 12 is success. So success is pretty straightforward and easy. I think if you come from DD&D or Pathfinder or most other D20 systems, the success is pretty easy. But But a hard move that happens in a fail is something new. So I thought we'd start there because there were some people asking questions. I know it was something that I had to get used to doing. I now love it. But I want to, can you talk us through what is a hard move and 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 how do you come up with that on the fly, right? Yeah. So a hard move in Powered by the Apocalypse games, it, it's literally that. It is the hard move that you as the keeper, as the GM, make against the players for their failure. Um in the different books, it gives some lists of options of the type of things that could happen, whether it is exposing information about themselves, whether it's just straight up taking damage. Um, in the sense of how you pick one, really, I always try to look at the situation they're in and what they're trying to do. So if they are you know, running down a hallway and they've got a uh, person that they've just saved with them and they're trying to dive out the door and close it before a creature grabs a hold of them and they roll a fail... Well, you know, the thing they were trying to do was get that person out safely. So that person's probably getting captured by the creature. You know, someone's getting stolen. Someone's getting kidnapped. Someone's getting attacked. Um, you know, one of my favorite things in Monster of the Week book is that uh, on a uh, act under pressure, 
on the fail, the text is things go to hell. And so that's something I try to kind of that sounds just dark and devious, but that's something I try to keep in my heart as I think about hard moves of, you know, what they, what do they want in this moment and how could this possibly go horribly wrong? And that's the direction I try to lean. Yeah. And I know sometimes it can be hard. I remember when I was first starting in Dungeon World and there's the list, right? So Rev's talking about there's always a list of like, here's examples of things on off and on a hard move. And it was so hard sometimes for me to be like, ah, they lose a resource. I'm like, I don't know, you drop a knife. It just doesn't seem hard. Yeah. And and to get into the spear of it took me a while. And one of the tricks that helped me that might help other beginners is the whole idea of an off-screen hard move, right? Like, so I now use that. If I, and I say it a lot to new new gamers, like you're in the room, everyone's looking at you. They rolled a fail just and you don't know what to do. Just write a word. I just write down a random anything. Doesn't Just fake that you're writing something and go, oh, and then keep going. Right? It can save you. And then in your head, you can be like, what just happened? Like maybe, you know, maybe the big bad they've been dealing with just found their village. Yeah. Um, anything that comes, right? You, but you can you can almost gain yourself some time. Be like, I'm going to move something off screen. Yeah. And a lot of times I think that especially if you're doing a longer campaign of a game like this, it gives you so much flexibility. Um, and I think to the other thing to keep in mind is that the first time you're playing through these games, especially if you're running the game, you know, the kind of the number one rule is the moves work. So when someone rolls something and they get a success um, early on, you're going to feel like, especially with things like investigate a mystery or discern realities, you're going to feel like you're giving away the farm every time you answer because you know, one of the tenets is honest truth, uh, honest, truthfully. Uh, that's my new campaign slogan. Honest, truthfully <laughs> uh, is to answer truthfully. And so you're going to feel yes. like right away you're just given away too much information. But that's the balance. The balance is that, yeah, you're going to give them a lot of stuff with a success. But that's because it's going to be really bad when they fail. Nice. And so I think keeping that idea in mind of counterbalancing the the failures with those full successes will help kind of make you feel a little more justified in really making sure that those hard moves are actually hard moves and not like you said, just kind of, no, I used up one of your resources. It doesn't really feel all that hard. No. Move. Yeah. Unless they're like, they only have enough of something to get the thing done and then they lose. Yeah. One. That's very true. Yes. Yeah. So I love that. And, and, and that's a great, I'm glad you brought that up because the game is weighted by the apocalypse games are weighted for the seven to nine, right? Like the, the, it's more likely to come up partial success. Um, that's what will happen a lot. So yeah, you got to give a lot of, you got to really push the good and the bad when it happens. So partial success blew my brain. Right? I've been playing D&D for, I don't even want to say I said in the last episode how many zillion of years. <laughs> and and I read the book, and I even read the big Dungeon World book. I just, like, you know, I watched videos, and I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, I can do this. It's like the basic concept of they succeed, but, right? So it's like, it's like yes, but. Um, it destroyed me at the table. Like my brain would just like seize up. Like, you know what I mean? Like just two gears. like, um, And we had a lot of people write in, like, can you talk about this idea of like, how do you approach partial success? And we can talk scenarios, whatever. Um, I just, I'm fascinated, right. With 
How much fun do you have with that and how do you do it? So, you know, mixed successes are, I think, one of my favorite things about the game. I love the narrative options that it presents. And, you know, the thing that I always say whenever I talk about these games is that a partial success is still a success. So you always want to make sure you know exactly what the player was trying to do. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to uh, I see this person up in a window and I'm going to shoot at the window. Okay, so you're trying to hurt them. Are you trying to like scare them or distract them? Oh, I'm trying to distract them. Okay, great. So now you've gotten a a mixed success. Okay, so you're still going to distract that person. Yeah, they're they're not going to be focused in the other direction more. They're going to have attention on you. And then when it comes to those options of what is the mixed success and this is something I found out actually pretty late in our running the first season of the crit show was that we had the, uh, the creator of the game came on our season finale and he played as a character and partway through, he's like, Oh, you're doing way too much work. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, when it says, you know, that you get a, a hard choice, a, a price to pay or a cost. Like I, I just meant like one of those, but you're giving the players three options and letting them choose one. And for me, that's, what I really like to do, I like to give the players three options and they get to pick one because it still gives them a little narrative control. Because for me, like if I'm in my life, like, oh, I'm going for a run and I trip, I always feel like in that moment of tripping that my brain goes, well, I could try to catch myself on my hands and I'm going to break my wrists or I could try to catch myself on my elbow and that's going to really hurt. Or I can try to go on my shoulder and I'm going to put it out of place. And you have that split second to like kind of choose. Yeah, this is going to go bad, but how is it going to go bad? And so I just fell in love early on with the idea of giving those three options to the players and letting them kind of choose their own fate. Um, And so the way that I like to try to pick those three options that I give the players is, you know, kind of in that moment of they've rolled the mixed success. Okay, they are climbing up a rope. They're trying to get away from a creature. All right. So they succeed. They are going to get up that rope. But what are the things that could go wrong in that scenario that make it a little more complicated? Okay, so you're going to climb up that rope and you're actually going to take a point of damage to your hands because you were climbing so fast you can feel that you're getting burns. Or you're going to make a lot of noise as you do this. And so some other creatures throughout the building, they're going to hear it and they're going to come and they're going to be underneath that rope now as well. You're going to have a mass of creatures instead of just this one. Or when you get to the top, you're going to hear something moving around somewhere up in the rafters with you. And so then I, you know, let them choose which one of those three they want to do. So again, they're still kind of controlling their own narrative. Um, But in the sense of coming up with them, it's really about imagining them in that moment and imagining what could complicate it while still letting them succeed at the task that, that they'd stated. Yeah. And it's, I think if you've only ever done D20 systems, it's, it's just new, right? Yeah. we're used to critical failures and we're used to critical success. Um, but this idea of succeed, but yeah. Um, but it can, you're right. It can be one of the best narrative tools, right? When you think of um, when you, I, that idea that they get to do what they set out to do, but there's this complication, I think has led to some of the funniest moments that have happened at my table. Yeah. Right. Um, but I want to go back to what you said. So you had the the person who created the game at your table. Yeah. I am amazed you had the guts to do that. That's awesome. <laughs> and then, so they were saying, because I think I've done the same thing. They're saying you just have to pick one and you give them one choice. Yeah. That it's, that it's not necessarily that you have to give them all three of them. Um, but I, 
love doing it that way. That is how I teach it whenever we run panels, whenever we run games. Um, and I, you know, anytime people ask about running one of these games, I still suggest like, oh, you should totally do it this way. Because again, it just gives more narrative control. That's interesting because I think that's the only way that I've heard it played. Because like, I listen to Sean play, plays Dungeon World, uh, your show, you give them the option. Um, the Adventure Zone, even Griffin during um, Monster of the Week, gives them the option anytime something's happening. Uh, so I find it interesting that people tend to lean towards that where the rules, as they're written, state that, no, you pick. Um, so it's... I guess it's telling of people that, you know, they like that fate option. You choose yeah. what you get, what happens to you. Pick your poison. It's also, I don't, it's also not clearly written, at least, may, again, we're going off the shorthand stuff so often, right? Maybe it's clear in the detailed rules. Russ had a question, which I think this is a good point, Russ, for this, mm -hmm. which is, let's say we've gotten our brain to switch to this idea of partial success and hard moves. Um, go ahead, Russ. I think you want to talk about how we, what we can use that for. Yeah, well, a big question that we get and that I see a lot online is that D twenty systems, so D and D or Pathfinder or any of that, um, a big slowdown in the in the game and the, for the table and even in some podcasts, he points to himself is combat um, because it's it's an initiative based. You got to wait your turn. Sometimes the players aren't ready even when it gets to their turn. It's either you you hit or you don't. So I really like, and and I've tried to work it in myself, um, but I'm curious to know if we can either, you know, if anybody has any great ideas or if we can collectively come up with some ways that we can take this, this idea of uh, partial or mixed success and implement that or put it on top of a D20 system. So someone, even if they, they're scared they're scared or they don't want to try the powered by the apocalypse game and they're really comfortable with a with a dungeons and dragons can they incorporate that into their game and how do we see it playing out you know it's a really interesting question about how you would take some of these narrative mechanics and and shift it over to a, a more um i don't know rule filled game um and, you know, I've run a little bit of Pathfinder since we've started playing these different games. And the thing that I have noticed is that, you know, if you're trying to find ways to make the combat a little faster or a little more engaging, um, you know, between players move or between players turns, you know, I find myself that the change that has happened is, you know, say someone gets an amazing hit on a creature and the creature shouldn't be dead. But story-wise, it's much more interesting if it is that, you know, this person has charged up from the back of the line. Everyone thought that they, you know, had been left at the last station, but here they are to try to help out the group. They leap forward and they strike the general. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm going to break away from the mechanics and I'm going to use the narrative system of, you know, this, this was a full success. This was a hero moment. So, yeah, you're going to take this guy down or, oh, I rolled a fail. Uh, you know, instead of, oh, I, I missed its armor rating and so I'm not going to damage it, you know, it's it's maybe going to get a hold of you or it's going to start paying attention to what it is that you are trying to protect. And it's on its turn, instead of just attacking you back, it's going to move around you and it's going to go for the thing you're trying to protect because it doesn't think it, you're a threat to it. 
Nice, yeah. Oh, I, I want to see Russ's reaction to this. No, I really like that. And I mean, I've been. Oh, so if we say it's a storytelling method, yeah. you're okay with just yeah. killing them and, and lying about. I Look, see where we went. Okay, All right. here's the thing. I've been. I'm, yes, Sean, you got me. I like rules. I like to say, okay, this rolls, this does. But I've been listening to other shows. And I've been listening to other other DMs and GMs and keepers and all that and seeing what they're doing well um, and trying to find a way to fit it within my game because we play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so what I've tried to incorporate or what I'm trying to incorporate, and it's still a work in progress, but is the idea of the windows of success. So yes, your, your bad guy has that AC of 16, but... From 10 to 15, it's still, if that person or that creature isn't wearing armor, you're still going to hit them, but it's going to glance off their armor. So it gets you in close to them. So there's a window where you're close enough to them that that might invoke some sort of opportunity against you because you failed, you've hit, you've rolled into them, glanced off their armor. Now you're, you know, your arm is exposed or you're under you know under your armor is exposed um, and then the same window going up to that critical critical success i really like the idea of you know you've got it you've narrated this really great story moment you're running towards the the big bad guy you roll your crit your your, your natural 20 and then you get to murder them essentially like even though they have 200 hit points you find the sweet spot and they go down or they're spurting blood and they now need supreme help um so taking the idea of the window of success the the one to six the seven to nine the ten to twelve and trying to incorporate it with it it takes a little more math and finessing because each creature is different obviously yeah um, so I guess it's a little and more I work. But. I don't know how much I do it based on the the die too, right? I think part of it is like, so here's something I never liked about D&D. Um, you got a thief, they're an assassin, yeah. but they're not level 30 and they manage. There is to no do level 30. Ins- There's your first problem. All right. Now we go. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they manage to do a, a bunch of crazy things, right? They roll really well. They manage to sneak around into the darkness. They manage to supr- come up from behind a guard, like a, a, a very important guard. Everyone's trying to get past without being seen. And then they basically, they say, I try to slit their throat. And in D&D, like, let's say they even roll a 20 and we do double damage. That person can still be alive. Yeah. And- for me, it's this idea of story. Like, let's say they just do a normal bit of damage and they roll what? A, a 1d4 and then, or 1d6. Yeah. And so they do like eight points of damage with a bonus or something. And you're like, this person has 40 damage. But they literally just snuck up behind someone, could see a gap in the armor, and just plunge their sword into their heart. So for me, it's like what I, what I notice myself doing now is paying more attention to the stated intent. Right. So I think if you said player can make an argument that they've just gotten to a place where they are going to be able to put a dagger through someone's heart and they then roll a success, I think that's an opportunity to be like, what's the success? Am I just going to look at the success of a strike and deal with the damage according to all the rules? Or am I going to look at the success of, oh my God, they just snuck up behind this person and slit their throat? Yeah, it's, you know, one of the really interesting things with, um, you know, kind of going back to your point, Russ, uh, if you look back actually at um, 
Earth Dawn, their first edition, had levels of success. And so, you know, the the person you were fighting had whatever their armor class was. And if you got five points above that, if you got 10 points above that, it was a different level of success. And some of those things would be armor defeating and some of those things would do extra damage. And so there was more to be gained the higher, you know, you got above it. Um, and But that idea of, okay, you've told me this story, you know, you've snuck up behind this person. They're completely unaware that you're there. You've slit their throat. Uh, yeah, they take 14 points of damage. They're still alive. <laughs> they're bleeding you know, out. They can't talk now, but yeah, yeah they still walk over and club you with their mates. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. You know, it kind of brings to my mind um, in Powered by the Apocalypse games, you know, kind of the rule of thumb is that if there's no risk to failure, you don't call for a roll. If it's something the character could just do, there's no need for them to roll. And so a moment like that kind of reminds me of that scenario of, oh, yeah, this this person's asleep in their bed. I've snuck into the room and I'm going to stab him in the heart with a dagger. Well, this person is totally defenseless. Like, yeah. you know, how much pressure does it take to, to put that dagger in? So, yeah, absolutely. Describe it for me. I don't you know, that's the point where I don't need a roll as much as I like the rules of any one particular game. Yeah, just it's yeah, it it comes back to the 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 storytelling aspect, the narrative aspect mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, justify yeah. what you're doing and then see how well you succeed or fail. Um, and if it's if you succeed, then what you yeah, what your stated intent is, I wanted to kill that guy. Well, yes, go for it. He's dead. Yeah, that is something that I think fate will give you too, right? Like mm-hmm. I think running fate, running PBTA. Because you know what? Realizing now, I don't think when I was playing D&D all those years, I don't think I spent a lot of time listening to the intent because often there wouldn't be an intent, right? It was like, oh, we're going into battle. I swing it so-and-so. I cast a fireball. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The intent was let's just hack and slash. It's very, you know, it's very first edition D&D, right? Like it's very war yeah. war game based. Like you put your mini right. here, you move your mini there, that mini hits that mini, and then eventually that mini comes off the board. But now with all these other games that are more, more narrative based, more tell us what you want to do and then let the dice decide, give it that fate uh, aspect to it. Um, interpreting that into okay yeah. in the as a GM, yeah. you can start to think what are, what are, what are they saying they want to do because D and D does not reward it actually. I mean, one of the problems with D and D is it it doesn't you can say it doesn't reward you can almost say as a psychology kind of statement it punishes mm-hmm. um, intent right like it's it's like you're supposed to like you almost have to call out what you're doing on your sheet or what ability instead of saying, I want to scale the wall or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which I think in PBTA games, there's a lot more of like, tell us what you want to try and do. It's definitely true. I mean, I, I listening back to old episodes of my own, like, you, you know, one of the players describes, okay, well, yeah, they've that same kind of scenario where they've snuck up on this person. They've rolled their stealth check. They've made it through the shadows. They've made it around the corner into the person's living chambers. And now they're like, all right, well, I just want to go slit his neck. And then you're like, all right, well, roll to attack. And then you, right. and then there's no mechanic for, um, there's no mechanic to say, okay, well, where did you hit him? Mm, like a cold and, shot mechanic. And that's where I, as a as a DM, often got hung up, and still to this, you know, to this day, I'm trying to do, be better and do better for story and stuff, but still get hung up. It's like, okay, well, where do I justify them being like, 
okay, well, they do hit them in the neck or the temple, or they know they miss and they hit them in the arm. Like, it, and that sliding success kind of helps dictate that. The better you do, the closer you get to slitting their throat. The worse you do, you hit them in the toe, and now you've got a real problem on your hand. <laughs> yeah. And part of that is like, part of that is not, I guess part of it is knowing it's almost like when to step out of the game, like yeah. out of that system, right? And I think playing other games has definitely helped me become more aware of what do the what are the players trying to do? And because otherwise, yeah, I think it's totally normal, Russ, that you end up looking for the mechanic. Like, mm-hmm. What's the mechanic to allow this instead of, oh, this is a story moment. Yeah. Like it would, just makes total sense to deal with it in that way. This was awesome. Rev, do you have anything you want to add to that or I can... Move on to other questions. We, we Russ and I are just like so excited about this topic. <laughs> no, I think that the idea of you know this this shared narrative. I think the other element that we haven't really discussed about that is that it does require a certain level of trust among everyone at the table because you have to trust that you don't have a player there who's going to try to abuse if you give them this leeway. Uh, just like they have to trust that you're not going to you know, turn it against them or that you're not going to just start ignoring it on a whim. Right. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a strong level of trust amongst the players that is, is required to implement something like that. hundred uh, percent. Okay. Let's talk about battle without an initiative, because for anyone out there that has played D and D let's say, and then they're thinking of running a table and they're, they're thinking, well, maybe a PBTA or maybe a fate or maybe another system. Um, how like it's daunting right to to contemplate if you only know this initiative based everyone takes their turn it works through the whole battle um can you talk about like how like what would you say to someone that's getting started right that's got to now deal with the fact that people are going to be doing things on different time zone you know what i mean within different time ranges yeah so one of the you know one of the major things is just jumping between scenes you know if you've got players that are far away say you've got some people who are doing you know long volley arrow shots at this creature while you've got the two fighters up close treating those as two different scenes is completely fine because like you said they're going to shoot those arrows and then there's going to be a beat and while that beat is happening there's still action happening in that hand-to-hand combat um as for kind of player initiative or um you know, yeah, player initiative, it really is just a matter of, all right, so, you know, you've got this situation, this creature is here, what's everybody doing? And whoever speaks up first, oh man, I'm going to lunge for it and I'm going to swing a sword at it. Okay, rolls kick some ass. And then, you know, once that hit lands, moving on to the next person. And for me, it's really a matter of tracking the players at my table. Who do I know that would be right behind that person? Or who's the person that, you know, ran the other direction to try to start coming up with a plan? Um, and it's it's, you know, making sure that everybody gets an opportunity kind of to to go essentially before you come back around. You know, it shares that in common with initiative. I don't want one person making a bunch of moves before everyone else gets to go. Um, but, oh, yeah, this person failed this role and they've been knocked down. So I'm going to actually remember to skip over them. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to point them out, but like, oh yeah, you know, you, you were knocked to the ground. Uh, you know, Jake, what would you like to do? Okay. Yeah. While he's doing that, you're taking this time to get up and, and find your weapon that clattered to the ground. Okay. So over to task, what are you doing? Uh, and so it's, you know, a lot of it is still trying to paint that narrative, um, 
you know, okay, Russ, you've been knocked to the ground and, and you see that Sean is charging at the creature, um, but his belly is totally exposed as he runs. What do you Sean's w- belly? Yeah. Yeah. What do you want to do? <laughs> I want to trip him. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the ground. I can trip him. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I can't trip him. Oh, no. <laughs> so you make the situation worse. I do. Always. Always make the situation worse. But as long as you do it with style. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I love what I love what you're talking about there. And I've noticed the same thing. There's like a there's still like a checking in with everyone, right? Like you want everyone to feel engaged. Yeah. Um I all right. I, I have to like one of the things I love about not having initiative is spellcasters. Um because like in Dungeon World, we still have a long list of spells to look at, um, even though it's all on the sheets that they're holding. So I, I love the whole, they're just looking and you, I just I, you go right past them. Yeah. Right. Like they're, I, I picture them on the field with their book, flipping pages. Right. Like um, <laughs> you don't have to wait for them. Yeah. It, there you go, Russ. There's a the thing for you. It kind of starts to feel like, you know, if you've ever taught uh, and you're looking for an answer from the classroom, you don't want to go to the person whose eyes are downcast on their piece of paper in front of them. They're not ready. So I'm going to go to someone who's looking back at me. Right. Definitely. Nice. Now, my wife is a teacher and she's always the one looking at the book. So that's where I get into troubles <laughs> is I can't. She's not. I've watched. I've watched your her. live. I've you, you can't skip over, but I watched your live. She's sitting there ready because she looks ready. And then you're like, OK, Amy. And she's like, oh, wait, that won't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely did that in our session uh, on Tuesday there. That was, <laughs> and then starts flipping. Yeah, no, um, definitely. Um, I mean, I. Uh, the way that I kind of look at these, that sort of mechanic, uh, again, bringing it back to D&D, because that's what I play, is not in 5e, but it's in 3.5 and 4, they had the skills challenge. Um, and it's still a mechanic that I really love because it's more, um, less based on rolling initiative and then deciding who goes, but just give the setting, give the scene, the scene that's happening, and then the first one who jumps in tells their their narrative what they do and then that triggers something else once they roll to see if their skill has succeeded or failed then the next person has to build off of that and the more successes you get the better you do in the whole scene the more fails you get the scene crumples around you and you fall into a pit and maybe die um not that i've ever done that before um uh, but there, there there are there are mechanics built into older versions but yeah definitely uh, not as prevalent in 5e for things like that um yeah i'm uh, okay so dungeon world rev i don't know about you but and maybe this is is this always in uh powered by the apocalypse i haven't done a lot of them yet but this idea that in hand to hand in battle i love this idea that at least in dungeon world there's always damage to the player like as a general rule like if you're going to go into a battle and do damage you're probably going to take damage mm. Um, but I kept forgetting that because, <laughs> right. I'm so used to the monsters get a turn. I kept like, I was, I think I did a battle that was like, went on for three minutes from realizing nobody they're fighting has really, you know, done anything, <laughs> um, except as a direct reaction in a moment. And I don't know, like, is that, uh, like, it, like, how do you approach that? Has it ever happened to you? Do you notice that? Yeah. So for the most part, you know, any of the systems, at least so far that I've encountered, you know, the creatures, the the 
opposite fighters, whatever it is that you're going against, they don't have their own move. All their moves are reactionary. It is based off of if you've gotten a mixed success on an attack or if you've failed something, you know, that gives you an opportunity to to damage somebody or take them hostage. Um, and so, you know, it does. It makes for a nice player driven encounter still because the creature actually, I, you know, I keep going back to creature because, you know, I was born out of Monster sure. of the Week. Um, but the creature isn't just getting that one attack. If If everybody's hitting it and they're, you know, they're still succeeding, but they're getting that mixed success. It's always lashing back out. And so it makes that threat a little more dangerous. Um, Cause you know, if you want to, here's the thing about powered by the apocalypse games, it requires a us mentality. If, if you're playing this game with the mentality of it is me versus the players, you're going to kill those players real fast. No problem. Because these games are designed for it to be dangerous for the characters. Um, they don't have a whole lot of survivability. And so it is the way that they think around things, the way they deal with things. And so part of that is the creature not getting its own move. So it can't just go in and slaughter mindlessly because, you know, two or three hits and, and especially in monster of the week. And you've got a team of dead hunters. And and it was funny. I, when I was say reading it, it was, I did it in reverse. You're right. That's hundred percent always reaction. But I remember I was in a battle halfway through and I suddenly realized the I just I suddenly realized the creature hadn't made its own move, and so I think I just started giving it a move uh, because I was so used to D and D, right? Yeah. I'm like, well, it's got to get a move too. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh well, kill it part. Well, it's the things yeah. you learn, right? When you're it's picking true. up a new system. Yeah, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Rev. It is my um, pleasure. And I'm loving Crit Show. I I started on season two. Um, and and I was so funny because you're running Dungeon World, and I was like, I thought it was funny. I was like, I was like, I'm gonna go to another PBTA system by listening. Ah, like, Darn it! Guess but again. You're just gonna um, get better at the one you already <laughs> play, Sean. Um, but I recommend everyone give it a listen if you're at all interested in Dungeon World. Though I don't recommend it as the first system, um, because uh, basically Rev throws his party into it in real time and walks them through the whole process, um, and it's still a lot of fun. So Reb, Monster of the Week has a very like if you're starting out, it walks through like a beginning keeper or whatever. It walks through how to set up the game, right? Like how to create the monster, how to create the hints, blah blah blah. Now that you've been running a lot of PBT games all this time, one of the one of the daunting things for any game master is how much do you plan, right? Like so, can you take us through sort of how you go about now? Like how do you go about setting up for a game? How much work does that take? Um, right? Is it like 17 pages of documents? Is it five bullet points? What's your sort of prep for a game nowadays? Yeah. So it is drastically different than when I used to prep for, you know, Earth Dawn or Pathfinder. Um, there still is some prep involved, but it's so, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't plan for the successes. You can't plan for the fails. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's hard to have a game like this on the rails because it's going to feel disingenuous to the moves that are being rolled to the results that they're getting. Um, and so for me, the thing that I have, uh, you know, we'll start with monster of the week. If it's monster of the week, I have the location. I know what the location is. If there are specific buildings, if there's something important, I've got that drawn out and then I've got my monster. I've got its moves. I've got its damage and its hit points. And then I've got my list of NPCs and, you know, it gives NPC tags, you know, are they there to be helpful? Are they doubtful? You know, kind of what is their role? Um, and then really that's all I need to run a game of monster of the week. Um, for dungeon world, 
it is more so about drawing the dungeon out and filling some of the rooms and then leaving some of the rooms blank because they're going to go into that room and they are going to do a role and, you know, oh, there's a new thing here that I didn't plan. You always want to leave yourself more than enough wiggle room based off of, again, those full successes or those hard moves that you get when they fail. So that door is empty and uh, they've been in the other room and they rolled a fail. Well, guess what? That door gets kicked open and there's a minotaur inside or, oh, no, they've rolled a really great success on a discern realities. And so what's useful or valuable to them? Oh, inside that room, there's a chest of gold. And so you leave yourself those blank spots to fill in as you go um, to feed either the, you know, the, the successes or the fails. I love that. Yeah, I mean, we've had some past people write in, and and I think it's, I think, I assume all of us, Russ, chime in, but I, I assume all of us started by over planning when we were younger when we started. Yeah. Oh, pages and pages and pages for a single session, <laughs> yeah, that you never got to. Yeah, right, right, and and then yeah, PBTA has sort of maybe pushed. I'm worried if now I push, it's pushed me too far, Rev, to where I'm like. <laughs> I just need, right? I just need my NPCs, one thing, and a couple bullet points. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's the thing that I love about them is, you know, if we had played the game we were originally going to play with the crit show, it wouldn't be anything like the story it is now. And and the thing I love about the story now is that it's also not something I could have imagined 30 episodes ago because of the twists and turns that those fails have had those successes have had when i thought there was no way they would figure this out the story has changed so much but i'm still able to have those bullet points that i know where this is leading to but it can go wildly off kind of in the in-between and that makes for a lot of the really dynamic moments i feel like that happen that is an amazing uh, point, I think, to close on. Uh, Rev, uh, I, I encourage everyone out there to go and listen to The Crit Show. Uh, it is amazing. And again, you're going to learn these systems as well by listening. Uh, Rev, if you could just like give us an out, tell us where we can find you, what's coming next, all that stuff. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Rev Deshane. Uh, you can find The Crit Show at The Crit Show on Twitter. You can also find us at thecritshowpodcast.com, uh, where we have links to all of our episodes, our Patreon, our swag. Uh, and you can listen to the podcast really wherever you download podcasts. Uh, as for what's next, um, actually in about a week, we're going to record a Let's Play for Evil Hat's newest game, Fate of Cthulhu, which will be a fate game, which is actually our first fate game to make a Let's Play for. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Very cool. Well, good luck, because it's a game that I still don't get yeah. completely to this day. <laughs> I've got these strange dice. <laughs> well, you'll have a let's play to watch. That's right. I finally learned how to play it. Yeah. Is it like batteries? Oh, love okay. the pluses and minuses. You just make that shit. You uh, just make that shit up I, as you I go. The one side of my tongue and it tastes Yeah, you have weird. to link them plus yeah. to minus when you That's roll. right. Yeah. And then yeah. and then you just throw them across the room and you say, well, we're just we're just doing it now. <laughs> Hopefully it works. Hopefully nobody fact checks us well thank you again yes, Rev. You. Uh, we highly we really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your wisdom with everyone it means everything to us thank you and you know if you're listening and you're considering it go play a powered by the apocalypse game you know it is what i like to call a gateway game if you have someone that's never played a role-playing game before and you want to get them into something more complicated this is the best way 
to get them into the shallow end. I can, I've sat down with my best friend of 20 years who never has played a game. I've played with people's parents, people's kids, and they've all walked out after that, you know, three and a half hours having had a good time and, and maybe starting their own game a little later. There you go. You heard it here. And we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to DM to GM. If you have questions about getting your game started, send them to us, Russ and Sean. Our email is dm to gmcast at gmail.com. You can also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at dm to gmcast. You'll find all the links down in the description. In the meantime, get your game started. We'll talk to you soon. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Cam Kander? Yeah, that was a strange thing. A prolific creator who disappeared suddenly in 2020. Eccentric, weird, inscrutable. Cam Kander was like a 21st century Howard Hughes. Nothing is known. Cam Kander, man, woman, non-binary person... No idea. Cam Kander, an enigma, a cipher, a mystery. Was Kander a genius or insane? Is there a difference? And one day, Cam Kander vanished into thin air. Off the map, off the radar, like Amelia Earhart. From me, BK Will, in conjunction with Trojan Cat Media, a division of Leave me alone. I don't have anything to say about Cam Kander. Comes a shocking six-part documentary series. Cam Kander is a Rorschach test. It's a MacGuffin stuffed inside a red herring, shoved down a rabbit hole that leads to a blind alley. Cam Kander is out there, waiting to make their glorious return. Like a cult leader? No, like a messiah. Discover Who is Cam Kander, a new investigative podcast coming Wednesday, September 1st, wherever you listen to podcasts.